Random Angst Productions presents the Middle Earth Movies Rewatch. Join your hosts, Mark and Justin, with special guest Kimball as we discuss the six movies in the Middle Earth saga. Hey everyone, welcome to the Middle Earth Saga Rewatch. We'll be talking about The Hobbit, Chapter 2, The Desolation of Smog in this episode. I am your host, Justin, and as always I have with me my co-host, Mark. Hey guys, how's it going? And today again we have a special guest who is a big Lord of the Rings and Hobbits fan, Kimball. Hello, la, la, la. Thanks for joining us once again, Kimball, and glad to have you back on the show to talk more about The Hobbit, Chapter 2. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm excited. Yeah. So we spent some time watching uh, this second movie of The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, and again we watched the extended edition, and uh, in our opinion that's uh, a better film. You know, it gives more detail to the story as, as it does to the other films as well. So if you have the opportunity, we would encourage you guys to watch the extended edition. It's a little bit longer. I think it comes out to three hours or so, but uh, that's the good thing with home video is you can pause it, you know, go get a sandwich, come back, unpause it, watch it some more, you know, so you have all the time in the world to, to watch the film and and just soak it in as, as the story goes on. But... Uh, we want to start out by talking a little bit about the story, uh, the last chapter and chapter one an unexpected journey we ended with them the company they had escaped uh, azog the white orc and were saved by the eagles and were, were left on a big rock that looked like a bear and then they were able to see the lonely mountain off into the distance and that's where that film ended and this film it picks up right where that one left off so in this chapter two of the hobbit we see the company meet up with a, a new character, Bjorn, and then they're able to travel through the Mirkwood and have all sorts of adventures there in the Mirkwood. But they are captured by the elves who live there and are put into jail there with in the Elven Kingdom. And but they're able to escape with the help of Bilbo and make their way to Lake Town. And again, they're captured in Lake Town. But they're able to barter their way out of it and make their way to the Lonely Mountain, which is their final destination. And then they have their confrontation with Smaug the Dragon. So a lot of um, a lot of adventures in this film, a lot of action, some good story, good character development. We see some new characters. So overall, uh, it's a good a good three hours of, of film. But uh, in the very beginning of the film, they uh, they always give like a historical background of of this Middle Earth and kind of what's going on. Well, I guess what has happened in the past. And here we don't go too far back. I think we go back maybe a few months or so before um, the beginning of the adventures in the last chapter in An Unexpected Journey. I don't know, what what were your guys' opinion of when this film started, like this first uh, prologue, I guess you could call it? When Thorin and Gandalf meet, 
Mm, I, I thought it tied it in kind of well, right? Because you don't really know uh, why Thorne and the company are going or how it all started, yeah. right? They just kind of show up in the first one. So I think this one gives a little bit of context about, um, you know, Gandalf tracking down Thorin, egging him on to do the, uh, to do the trip to Lonely Mountain and, tri- you know, try to kill the dragon because that was kind of Gandalf's goal the whole time is to get rid of the dragon. And so uh, I, I, I liked it just, just because it gave it context. Uh, because I've read it, so it didn't matter to me, but I'm sure some people appreciated it. Yeah. I think um, the difference in the book and the movie was that Gandalf in the book says it was a chance meeting and the movie says it wasn't a chance meeting. So uh, that subtle difference is actually a pretty big difference because you can really tell Gandalf's motive. Like Mark was saying, he wants to get that dragon out and it's good to um, know that's kind of the main reason behind it. Also along with the dwarves wanting to return home. And I think it was probably a few months before Probably not a year, but you know, a little bit of time before the first film took yeah. place. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah, that's the impression I got. It was fairly recent, but not you know last week or anything. So, but yeah, uh, Gandalf asks about the Ring of Power that uh, Thorin's father had. He finds out it went missing. Um, he it was given to uh, Thorin's father Thrain, and then Thrain went missing. I guess. So uh, Gandalf urges Thorin to meet up with the Seven Dwarf families and to unite them and to go back and retake Erebor, the Lonely Mountain. Um, But we see that it didn't exactly play out that way. Um, But he does mention, Gandalf does mention that they need a burglar to, you know, get past Smaug, to get into the door, the back door. And so that plot point is there from the beginning. But it was good to see Bree in the end of the Prancing Pony again. I guess if you're watching it chronologically, this is the first time you've seen it. But uh, for those who watched the the films in theater as they were released in that order, it's a revisit to that uh, to that village and that inn. And I think they did a pretty good job of making it authentic um, and keeping it how it was in the Lord of the Rings. You can kind of see where. Strider was at, yeah. where you can see the stairs that lead up to the rooms where the hobbits were yeah. going to stay. So uh, they did a really good job at keeping the integrity of, of both the locations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I felt that I maybe I'm just making stuff up, but in my head, but I thought there was even some of the same characters there at that inn. But it could it could have just been the way they looked. They looked very similar. So it was good. Um, like I said earlier, we get to meet some new characters. Uh, we get to see Bjorn. And he is a shapeshifter. And he's a pretty large guy. And he can turn into a very large bear. And he's the one that chases the the orcs off as the hobbits are trying to you know get out of the mountains and the foothills and make their way to Mirkwood. But... Uh, I guess when he's a bear, he doesn't really comprehend what he knows as a human. I, I kind of got the impression they were two distinct 
personalities perhaps or they had distinct goals so he chases the the large bear Bjorn he chases them into his house actually and there the the hobbits are able to hide out and wait till he changes changes himself back into a human and then they they talk to him um some some cool things that Bjorn so Bjorn and Gandalf talk and some interesting plot points that they talk about um he tells Gandalf that there's an alliance between the sorcerer and Dogul-dur and the orcs of Moria. And that the dead have been seen walking the high fells of Rudiar. Rudar. Rudar. Yeah. So, and then they also talk about how in the past that Sauron, the enemy, could raise the dead. And he asks Gandalf, you know, has the enemy returned? So, some pretty good info there um gandalf does end up going to the high fells to see what's going on there and then he ends up from there he goes to dogledur to find out more about this sorcerer this necromancer so that's bjorn uh any thoughts on on bjorn from you guys um you know he, he's a pretty important character to the entire and to this book uh, he doesn't he doesn't exist in the Lord of the Rings and there's been different um, reasons why a lot of people think he, he passed away by then he's pretty old you know he died but but you don't really know what happened to him uh, but um, he ends up killing in the book he ends up killing Bolg uh, not Legolas which is spoiler alert <laughs> <laughs> my bad Bolg guys. <laughs> You haven't seen the third one, but um, so you know he's pretty important to the entire entire series, you know, as far as the movie goes. So it's pretty good to see him here and kind of how they depicted him because I kind of wondered what they do with him, uh, you know, with the shapeshifter thing going on, and uh, and I kind of like his attitude, you know, because he doesn't uh, he doesn't necessarily like Gandalf and the orcs or the the dwarves he just dislikes the orcs more right and he says that right he's like i don't like dwarves you guys are greedy and you, you know you don't see beyond your own you know what's with you and and that's how dwarves are you know that's they, they only care about you know their goal they don't care about nature and etc cetera, etc cetera. so i don't know it's pretty interesting I, I like how they depicted the the little time we get to see him see of him yeah. uh and um I think in the uh, extended edition, you get to see a little bit more of him, but it was pretty neat. I overall liked what they did with him, and I think he was in the movie for an appropriate amount of time. We didn't; he didn't linger. Yeah, yeah, I can agree with that. Um, so Bayorn reminds me of the Hulk every time I I see his character. I think of he's the Hulk of the Middle Earth. He's <laughs> one way. <laughs> Whenever he's in his creature form, you know, he can't quite remember or know exactly what he's doing. He's destructive. But then once he's back to human, he's kind of a regular guy. Um, and I thought that he did a, a really good job with him, especially the actor that they portrayed. He's uh, kind of menacing in real life, like intimidating. He's huge. He's has that deep, gravelly voice. Yeah. Um, they, did, they did a good job casting him. And, and like Mark was saying, the special features do a good job. Um, or not special features, the extended version do a good job in showing more um, 
of Bayorn and his character because we don't see him a whole lot, but you can kind of get to know him more if you watch the extended version. Yeah. Yeah, and I like that analogy of the Hulk. I mean, because that, that is pretty much the impression I got to. I just didn't realize didn't realize it until you said that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so he has an important role. I kind of relate him to Tom Bombadil a little bit where, you know, Tom Bombadil's from the Lord of the Rings, from the Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. You don't get to see him in the, in the film, but he plays a pretty, pretty large part in the books. So I was kind of wondering if they, because they could have skipped over this part pretty easily, but they didn't. And I'm just kind of thinking, you know, because they, they make it to Bjorn's house and they rest. You know, they're able to recoup, restock their supplies, get some help. And that's that's what happens with Tom Bombadil in the Fellowship of the Ring book. So, I don't know. I think maybe Peter Jackson was wanting to redeem that, redeem himself from not including Tom Bombadil. But I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, yeah, like you said, Tom Bombadil kind of uh, played an important part in the whole books, and you just didn't see him and didn't get to know about him because he, he existed before before Sauron came to Middle-earth, right? Yeah. Uh, no one's really sure when he came over. So he, he's been around a long time. So I was kind of bummed to not see him written in, but I mean, I kind of understand too. Yeah. But anyway, that's just my opinion on that. Uh, Bjorn, I liked his character. Like you guys said, good character casting and development. He had an appropriate amount of time with him in the film. And then from Bjorn's house, they go to... They make their way to the Greenwood, which is now known as the Mirkwood, because I think Bilbo is the one that says that he says the forest, this forest is sick, you know, like it's it's not well. And so they make their way there. Um, there's a, a sense of foreboding as they enter or they come to the borders of the Mirkwood. Uh, they're supposed to take the Elven Road, but the Elven Road is kind of run down and the overgrown and there's trees that are kind of encroaching upon the road so it's hard to follow uh, Gandalf he kind of makes his way into the forest a little bit and he sees there's a statue of an elf and he pulls away the, the branches and sees the eye of Sauron on that has been written on the elf statue kind of graffiti like and from there um, Gandalf realizes hey you know this orc problem is bigger than I thought. He, he wants to go investigate it. And at this moment, um, the impression I got um, was that Galadriel, the the elf queen, was communicating with Gandalf and tells him to go to the High Fells. But um, Kimball, you kind of had a different impression with that. I thought that maybe he was just reflecting on what she had said in Rivendell when they were meeting, but I could have missed something just because she's, uh, well, I guess she can communicate uh, telepathically, but I, that was just what I thought. Yeah, could be wrong. kind of unclear, but what about you, Mark? Any insight? Uh, yeah, you know, I assume that uh, she's communicating with him just because when they were in the Council of El, you know, when they were in that council, with Elrond and her and uh, uh, Sar- uh, Saruman, yeah. 
she, you know, she was communicating with Gandalf telepathically there, you know, talking about, you know, hey, you have something. Show me. Yeah. So he pulled out the, uh, the sword there. And, um, and so, you know, that, that's why I think he, that she's communicating with him that way. Uh, it's kind of an interesting part. This is an addition. This, this part's not in the book. It's not in the Cimmerillion. It doesn't actually exist. Uh, but it was, I liked how they did it. I was really, I was like, oh, that's awesome. You know, like, like I said, it's just context, you know, where, like, who are these, who are these people that are raising from the dead, you know, oh, here they are, you know, oh, one of nine and kind of ties it into Lord of the Rings. Where did they come from? The actual book and story, uh, during Sauron's downtime, they just flee into the North and, uh, are around, but. I thought this was a great way to answer that question for those that didn't read the book. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty spooky part when he goes to the, he leaves the the company at Mirkwood and goes to the high fells. I guess he has Radagast meet him there and mm-hmm. they, you know, go into the tombs there. There's nine tombs. Like, like you said, and they are, the tombs are, broken out from the inside so they escaped somehow and that's where the where Bjorn said that the dead were seen walking there in that area so totally it um, lets us know that they've the nine have escaped their graves and they're back to their shenanigans mm-hmm yeah no that was that was a pretty spooky part I like I just liked it you know how it was dark in there like yeah. you know even uh, Radagast is like this is not a nice place you know <laughs> look at these spells are old they're ancient so you get that these things are you know beyond beyond their time you know kind of like they I mean if Radagast is calling them old and ancient then you know I mean they've been there for quite a while so uh, it's pretty interesting I, I liked how that all went down and then you know they come out and you know Gandalf just has this you know he wants to get back to the hobbits and uh, Radagast has to call him back. He's like, "Look, you know, you, you know, our our missions to the people, uh, to all of Middle Earth, not to just a few of your friends. Yeah. You know, if what, what you say is true. The world's in danger, and yeah. that's what we're here for. So it was pretty neat. I liked it. Yeah, yeah. And from there, he goes to Dogledur with Radagast. Mm-hmm. Um. So back to the the company. Gandalf leaves. Oh, before right before he leaves, there's something I wanted to point out that was kind of important in my mind anyway. That it seemed like Bilbo was going to tell Gandalf that he has the ring at that point. Because he's like, you know, I found something. And he puts his hand in his pocket. and But then he chickens out, for lack of a better word, and says, instead of I found the ring, he says, I found my courage. So... Uh, which is ironic because he he didn't have enough courage to tell Gandalf he found the ring, <laughs> but uh-huh. he has enough courage to, you know, face Smaug, <laughs> which is interesting. But and there was a part where um, it felt like the someone was talking. He was being tempted to put on the ring at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so and it. I don't know if it talks much about it. But I know a lot of people talk about it on the 
on the boards. So the rings, all the rings of power. So there's, you know, nine of nine rings, you know, for the mortal men, seven rings for the dwarves, three for the elves, and then Sauron's. They um they all have their own power. And part of his is like it it kind of like almost corrupts those who who wear it and or around it. And so that's why they put it on. But a lot of the boards talk about why weren't any of the um, hobbits affected like it. And he, uh, someone talked to it a long time about it and were saying that because hobbits aren't ambitious in nature. You know, they don't have an ambition to to rule the world, to be the best or, you know, whatever. They just want to live their life, you know, marry, you know, be married, eat drink and so the uh, ring doesn't tempt them as much as anyone else because they don't have that that innate ambition and so why it was telling him to put it on he could still kind of resist that you know he he wasn't drawn to it as much you know and then even we see he can you know at the end of uh uh lord of the rings or not the end but you know when he leaves he he leaves the ring willingly yeah. And nobody else can do that, you know. Even Gandalf wouldn't take the ring from from Frodo because he's, you know, he's like, look, you know, I I would use this ring to do good, but it would just run a power through me that I couldn't control. Yeah. And here the hobbits can just, you know, Sam carried it, Bilbo carried it, Frodo carried it, and you know, none of them went crazy until the very very end. But but uh, no, it was uh, it's pretty interesting. So yeah, he was definitely tempted to put it on, and he did put it on multiple times. In the book, um, so uh, pretty interesting. It just didn't have a lasting effect on them. Yeah. Well, every That's time why hobbits are so great. Yeah. Um, I was, I was thinking that, yeah, he wasn't tempted at first because if you look in Lord of the Rings in the Fellowship, uh, Isildur when he gets the ring, like immediately he doesn't want to give it up. Um, it, it tempts him right away, and Isildur's a man. Uh, so hobbits are, are a little different than that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if you notice, every time that Bilbo puts on the ring, he he kind of doesn't want to. But it, the situation is, you know, hey, I gotta escape these caverns underneath the mountains. This is the only way I can get past Gollum. Then it's, you know, I gotta escape the spiders. This is the only way I can get hide from the spiders. Then it's, I need to hide from Smog the dragon, or else he's gonna eat me. Right. So it's the mm-hmm. situation that, you know, he uses the ring, not because he wants to. So, yeah. Um, so they enter the Mirkwood. They take the Elven path, but it's, like I was saying, it's in dispar- disrepair. And they kind of, they get lost uh, after a bit. And this part was pretty interesting. Uh, it was kind of funny. It sounded like, you know, I got the impression that they were intoxicated by something I think there was something coming from the water, you know, that, or I don't know what magic perhaps. And so they, they the mushrooms. yeah, the mushrooms, there was a scene <laughs> where Bilbo was sitting against a bank or something and there were some mushrooms behind him. And I was like, ah, they've been eating the mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> so a lot of confusion. They go off the path. They walk around in circles for a few, for a while. Um, there is a part I, that I appreciated where Thorn shoots at the white stag and then they chase the stag. And that part was in the book. I vividly remember that part, reading it. And, 
You know, because in the book, that's when they left the path is when they went to chase the white stag, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were starving, and yeah, so they they were hunting, and they chased it, and then they couldn't. They just got lost. Yeah, so I, I was glad they put you know, included that at least. And then I got the impression that Bilbo started to hear the voices, the spiders' voices, before he put on the ring. So I don't know what that is all about. Mm-hmm. So. Because he, he climbed the tree, right? He climbed the tree and the spiders came. So as he started lowering, he could start hearing something. You know, he's like, oh, what is this? And um, uh, so, was, I don't know. I, I've got arachnophobia, so I have a hard time watching this <laughs> this scene all the time. But uh, uh, the scene, in the, the book kind of explains it. It's almost pretty perfect to the book um, as far as that goes. You know, they all get caught and wrapped up and everything but uh they but it was pretty interesting i i think i wanted uh to see a little bit more with sting when he whipped sting out you know and sting, yeah. he gave, you know that's when he named his little dagger right yeah. uh, he, he killed the first first spider and it's like it stings it stings and so then he gave the, the name sting and we always know it as sting from then on out and uh in the book, he's attacking them and he's killing them left and right, and then they run away. Like the the spiders are like, "Oh, we're no match for this. Like this is whatever power this sting is. It, it's too much for us." And they run away. And they kind of took that away from Bilbo in in the movie. And I was a little bummed about that because that was kind of a, a big hero moment for him. Like the first time that he's, you know, really proved that he belongs. Yeah, that's true. So they're able to escape from the, the webs, thanks to Bilbo's help, fight off the spiders. And then the elves show up with uh, Legolas. He arrives and his group, as well as Tariel. We get to meet Tariel for the first time. And I guess chronologically, this is when we meet Legolas for the first time. Uh, but they're captured by the elves. and They're taken to their kingdom. And I was looking for the name of the kingdom, but just says they're the elves of the woodland realm in the greenwood so i couldn't find a name for their kingdom but so they're taken there and well, put in jail and that's right the, the the elves of the woodland realm or yeah. like uh for example lothlorien is another you know like kingdom or realm right. uh things like that so yeah that's that's the right woodland realm would be their kingdom yeah i guess i was looking for an elvish name I, I well, it's, find it. it's interesting to know that all the all the elves kingdoms didn't necessarily get along like yeah. Lorien. It used to be called Lorien, not Lothlorien, but Lorien, the Lorien elves and the woodland elves like had wars over their land. So it's kind of strange. I, I always thought that was weird because you assume that they're all, you know, getting along. They're all buddies, but like, apparently not. So, yeah, they're taken there. Bilbo still has his ring on, or he puts the ring on. Um, there's a moment when they're with the spiders that um, he's kind of separated from them, from the rest of the dwarves. And he, there's this weird white spider that attacks him. I guess it looks like a spider. I don't know what it is, but this monster. And he drops the ring, and he has to go through this white beast, this white creature, to get the ring. And so he go, kind of goes a little bit crazy and out of his mind and he 
kills this white beast and then he grabs the ring and he kind of is like you get the impression that he's acting like Gollum was and I think he even calls it my precious at one point so we start to see that the ring is having an effect on him in a negative way yeah in this scene or I guess in this film Bilbo kind of reminds me like throughout these three films like you could see the development of a person so in in the unexpected journey he's kind of like a child he's naive he's um, innocent but in, in this film you kind of see him turn into a teenager as when he doesn't tell Gandalf about the ring he's kind of being rebellious um, and then in this part with the white spider he kind of starts to kill this um, creature which it seems like he was doing something wrong and I think he realized it too yeah. Um, and it, it just seems like he's kind of turned into a, a teenager at this point uh, he's growing up essentially yeah. But he's just in that rebellious phase right now. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's that's a good good way to look at it, for sure. So he's he's separated from the rest of them, and he sees the elves come and capture the dwarves, so he puts his ring on to hide from them to avoid capture, and then he follows them to their kingdom, and he's able to sneak inside. And so while... And then the dwarves are put in gel cells and this is where um, Tariel and is it Keeley or Feely? <laughs> I believe it's Feely. It's the Keely. younger of the two. Keely. Which one? Keeley or Feely? Keely. Whichever, one, whichever one's younger. <laughs> <laughs> whichever one plays uh, Poldark. <laughs> I think it's Keeley. Yeah, Keeley. Okay. So Keeley and Tariel, they kind of start talking, a little bit of flirting going on, and Tariel's kind of, I don't know what, I don't think enchanted is the word, but intrigued, yeah, that's the word, He's, she's intrigued by him, I guess she's been told all her life that dwarves are scum, and she kind of looks at him like a, in a new light, she's like, oh, he's not that bad, he's kind of, he's kind of cute. Yeah, well, he's taller for one thing, so I think that uh, intrigued her. So yeah. he was a little bit different than a traditional dwarf, and plus he was flirting with her, um, and she could read that. Yeah, She got she kind of shut him down hardcore, though, right? He's like, <laughs> yeah. are you, you going to search me? I could have anything down in my trousers. And she's like, or nothing. Like, boom, man. Like, all, all dwarf self-worth went out the window right there. Yeah. That was, that was the humorous part. Uh, so Tariel gets introduced to the story, and she's in it for the rest of the this film as well as the next one. She plays a pretty big part, but she's a, a new character that Peter Jackson created, correct? Correct, yeah. She she does not exist in the books, and Legolas didn't exist. Uh, is, well, he existed. He just wasn't in the books. He wasn't part of the storyline at all. Yeah, he wasn't named, right? That's correct. Is is uh, the king his father? Or really? Yes. Yep. Thranduil is his father, yeah. um, and that that's been outlined in the other books uh, for sure. Yeah. But uh, I don't. I read somewhere what he was doing. Like there was something going on why he wasn't there, uh, but I don't remember what that was. So, but there's a reason for him not being there. Yeah. 
I think if you look at how the books were written chronologically, I just think Tolkien hadn't created him yet. <laughs> and that's why he wasn't there in the book. So with the addition of these two characters to the film, uh, Tariel and Legolas, is, is that, are they good additions? Do they further the story? Are they interesting? Kind of what's your take on these two characters? We'll start with you, Kimball. So I know that these have um, characters have been a source of hatred for the diehard fans of yeah. the books, but me, since I'm more familiar with the movies than the books, I like them. I think it brings um, a good element. At least having a woman in there, she's kind of like the Arwen of Lord of the Rings. Yeah. So that way, it's not just a bunch of dudes. You kind of get at least one female, <laughs> uh, her viewpoint in it. And the the flirting, the love scenes, I guess, the attraction that I think that makes it that makes it exciting. You kind of want to root for someone, and it, or you maybe you don't want to root for someone, and then bringing in Legolas, I think that that was a, a move just to kind of tie the movies together, bring a more familiar character back into the Hobbit to make him more likable, which. I, I appreciated it. I thought it was fun because, yeah, we know Legolas was alive and uh, at this time, so why not help out um, kill the spiders or why not help out uh, see what these dwarves are up to? So I, I appreciated it. I didn't have any complaints with these two. Yeah. Okay. What about for you, Mark? It's horrible. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> uh, why was it horrible? Because it didn't need to be three movies long, and things like this made it three movies long. Um, I, I think that, you know, when you look at the whole thing, it's a cool addition, and they did some cool things with it. You know, uh, you know the love interaction, Legolas coming back, one of the favorite characters from Lord of the Rings. You know, you get to see more of them, really. Uh, but it doesn't really do anything for the whole story. Um, it. You know, it doesn't advance anything. It doesn't stop anything. It just is thrown in there to make the movie longer. And I think that's what bugged me about the whole thing is that uh, overall it just is a waste of time. And and I think you could have told a more concise story with a couple better parts in two movies than make it three and add in all this, you know, horrible stuff I, I don't even know how to explain it horrible stuff i mean it just i don't know i mean i can appreciate it as a movie watcher but as a as a tolkien lover and liking the books i just i found it needless and if you've read tolkien if anyone i mean i know you guys have but any of the younger generation has read tolkien you'll know that he already puts enough crap in there like you can read like three pages about a leaf blowing in a wind and you're just like okay enough right so to add in more of this stuff is just too monotonous for me. And But, I mean, you know, so two different takes. As a, I think as a movie-watching fan, I, I can appreciate it. As a fan of the books, I, I just don't didn't like it too much. I didn't hate it, but I didn't like it. Okay. Uh, so would have, like with Legolas, if he would have shown up, he fought the spiders, helped, you know, free them from the spiders – but then you never saw him again. Would that been sufficient for you or just overall you didn't want him there? Yeah. I mean, it just, I, I think, 
I mean, I think it's nice for him to bring him in just to show where he comes from, you know, for the later movies. But, I, like I said, I just don't think he furthers it. I mean, they did more with it, right, with his vendetta against Bulg and the big throwdown they had in the next movie. Uh, which, but that just doesn't, like I said, that doesn't exist in the uh, in the book. So, while the outcome's the same, you know, Bulg is killed, uh it just didn't happen that way. So instead you put this character in to do something that was already done, but you lengthen the entire story by X amount of minutes, you know, or however long it would take to say that. I don't know. That's why I didn't like it is that it just didn't accomplish anything more. It just okay. created a longer storyline. Yeah. Okay. I get what you're saying. Uh, for me, I thought, I thought they were good additions. I didn't have a problem with it. The love story between Tariel and Feely is a little odd, but I did appreciate that there was kind of that storyline instead of, like Kimball said, just a bunch of dudes running around. I mean, it was good to have something to, con- you know, some a female to contrast the rest of, of them with. Uh, Legolas, I thought he was a little too much in the film, but I, I'm not going to complain. He did some pretty cool action scenes, but mm-hmm. overall I liked it. So, Bilbo is able to spring them from the gel cells in the Elven Kingdom. And he comes up with a plan to have them escape uh, through the... I guess there is a storage room that they had barrels in. And they hide in the barrels and then they drop out of a like a trapdoor thingy into the water. And they're able to float down the river to escape. So that's how he gets them out. They have to trust him because they get to the storage room and they're like, okay, now what? What do we do now? He's like, well, you got to get in these barrels. They're like, what? (laughs) (laughs) What are you doing? (laughs) What's going on? So they have to trust him, which they do. He's able to to help them escape. And then they, but then the elves find out. They see them kind of floating down the river. So they chase them. And then at the same time, Azog and his group of orcs kind of converge on on them as well. They try to sneak in the back way, which is the same way that Bilbo and the dwarves are escaping. So there's a confrontation between the dwarves, the elves, and the orcs And as the dwarves are floating down the river. So that's a pretty pretty cool sequence. Um, It's similar to the one we saw in the first film with uh, the dwarves escaping the goblins in the Mines of Moria. You know, where they're just running and killing goblins as they go and all this crazy stuff's happening. It's pretty similar to that. Kind of the same feel. Um, I, th- I thought it was pretty cool. Lots of gags. Lots of funny moments. You know, there's <laughs> there's a, a tree that's fallen across the river so the orcs get out on it. But then the dwarves chop it as they go down the river and it, the orcs fall in the water. And then they throw a, a spear and pin one of the orcs to a different tree. And then there's a part where Bomber, the big, you know, large fat dwarf, is in a barrel and he gets knocked out of the river and he's bouncing along the shore, taking out all these orcs and spinning with hammers in his hands. So a lot of crazy stuff, stuff like that. Um, so it was it was entertaining. It was you know a good change of pace for for this instead of just floating down the river, which I think is what kind of happens in the book. Where it's just this peaceful float as they escape. Am I am I rem- remembering that right, Mark? 
Yeah, yeah. They just uh, he puts them in the barrels and they just kind of float on to Lake Town. Yeah. Not 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 much really happens. Yeah. So this is a lot more interesting. Um, there were parts though that seemed a little too much like a video game. Like I was watching um, someone play a video game of the Hobbit. Um, but overall, I I liked it. What were your thoughts on on this scene, Kimball? I like the scene too, but it did feel a little bit too long where at one point you're just thinking, okay, this is a little bit much or a little too ridiculous. Like <laughs> maybe I think they could have t- taken out two or three bounces of Bombor <laughs> in the barrel. I mean, yeah. that, that, that momentum probably couldn't have lasted that long, yeah. but yeah, That's this is point. a fantasy movie and it's, all fiction but it was i think that scene just went a little bit too long maybe they could have shortened it by 10 20 seconds and then it would have felt just fine but it was very entertaining i like the part where legolas is kind of balancing and dancing on the dwarves heads and you could just see his agility and footwork as he's kind of just prancing on each side of the the riverbank yeah yeah that's kind of my take on it too any thoughts mark uh you know just Kind of like what you guys said, just a little much. Uh, one of the things I thought was like, man, it, how, how did the dwarves ever lose a battle to the to the orcs, man? Like yeah. thirteen of them kill like <laughs> like you know two hundred. I mean, holy crap! But uh, uh, but no, it's uh, it, like it's one of those things, you know, just a fun addition that uh, you know kind of livens the movie up, yeah. but. You know, as a, as a book fan, same thing. You know, it just adds minutes to a movie that doesn't need to be there. You can tell a, a perfect story without all the all the junk. In fact, if you want to see uh, The Hobbit in like 52 minutes, there's a 1977 animation version that will show it to you. It's amazing. Yeah. It's pretty trippy, though. Oh, I love Were they it. they on drugs when they made that? <laughs> I, I don't they must have they probably made Alice in Wonderland at the same time but you know it's uh I I like it uh, smog, smog in that animation was amazing Yeah I remember watching it as a kid too So they escape the orcs and eventually they find their way to Lake Town by way of meeting up with Bard who is uh, I get the impression he was a merchant so he had a ship and he was getting He's a barrel rider. Was he a barrel rider? Yeah, he, he collects the, the ba- Yeah, he collects the barrels. Uh in the book he's the captain of the guard. Yeah. So yeah, he's Bard sneaks him into Lake Town. He, he they the dwarves pay him to transport them across the lake to the other side to get to the lonely mountain. And in order to do that, they have to hide in the barrels. And they pay him money to do that, as well as to give them weapons, which turn out to be pretty sorry-looking weapons. Just kind of makeshift hammers and spears, and so they don't appreciate that much. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were pretty jerry-rigged. I was like, I've never seen that. I was like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. So they... Um, they decide they get to Bart. He Bart hides them in his house, and they're arguing over the weapons. And then they decide to raid the the city's armory and get some real swords and maces and all that stuff. 
So they break in, and but then Keeley, who had gotten injured with, during their escape from uh, the elves, he, he his leg was injured, so he kind of stumbled and dropped all the swords and made a big noise. And then they're captured by the Lake Town police, Lake Town army, and they are brought before the master of Lake Town. And the master of Lake Town is another character who was created specifically for uh, this movie because he didn't exist in the books. And I'm not sure if they even hid out in the town in the books, did they? The... The dwarves? Did they hide out in Lake Town? No, they just, like, they showed up, right? In in the book, they just kind of show up and they're greeted like, oh, check out these cool doors, welcome, let's be buddies. Like, it wasn't even, like, conflict you know a conflict yeah. they just it's like they stopped there resupplied and were on their way okay. so yeah the master of lake town and his lackey um they're created specifically for this show to create some conflict between them and bard and the dwarves and uh bard doesn't want to help them once he finds out who they are that uh, it's thorin and they've, he's come back to take back the Lonely Mountain from from the dragon. But the people do. Uh, Thorin gives a speech. And he kind of tells the promises of them part of the, the money, the gold that he's going to get back from the dragon. So they're all for helping him. And the master of Lake Town gives them his blessing. And they you know, start to leave. Um, so it's Feely, Keely, and another dwarf who are left behind to help uh, Keeley heal, right? Yeah, who was it? It was, uh, he was one of the more popular dwarves. Uh, Biffer Boffer. Was it Boffer? Hoot. I can't remember. Do you remember, Kimball? Yeah, I think Boffer. There might, I remember seeing four that got left behind. Oh, was there and there might have been Dory as well. Okay, so four of them are left behind to help because Keeley's injured. Yeah, and definitely Boffor because he slept in. Yeah, and <laughs> he was um, trying to make it to the boat so he can leave, but the boat already left, and that's when he turns around and he sees Feely and Keeley, and so he stays behind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, but it is Boffor. Okay. He's played by James Nesbit. Yeah. So the the company split up, and Thorin and Bilbo and the rest of the dwarves they they go to the the town Erebor. No, what's the town called? Was it Erebor? Or is the that mountain? Yeah, Erebor. Yeah. So they go well, to Erebor's the ruins of the, the country. Town. Are you talking about the or D- um, Dale? Yeah, it was the oh, city Dale. of Dale. That's right. Yeah. So they go to the ruins of Dale, and then from there they kind of go around the back side of the mountain. And they were supposed to meet Gandalf there at that overlook to the city of Dale. But he wasn't there because he had gone with Radagast to Dogul'dur. So let's talk a little bit about Dogul'dur. That's a ruined city. We saw it in the first chapter in An Unexpected Journey. And that's where the Necromancer is. Uh... So Azog had gone back to Dogul'dur and met up with Sauron, 
who in that at that time he was just this black spirit smoke looking thing and uh, Sauron tells him to stay there and to send his his other guy his lieutenant I guess uh, Bolg out with the orcs to try and capture the dwarves again but uh, Azog stays there with a group of orcs so that's where he is Gandalf shows up with with Radagast uh, Gandalf tells Radagast to go find Galadriel and tell her that he's entering Dogoldur. So Radagast leaves, then Gandalf enters. And he ends up kind of searching the ruins. Uh, another spooky part. Um, but he finds Thrain, who is uh, Thorin's father. And this is extended edition. Right. Is when he finds him. So if you watch just the normal edition, you won't see this part. Uh, but it's a pretty cool edition. Right. And so Thrain has gone mad. He, he First of all, he starts attacking Gandalf. And then Gandalf is able to kind of pin him down and uh, talk to him a little bit, uses magic to reorient Thrain. And we see that Thrain has been there quite some time. And he's he's lost his mind. And he did have a ring of power, but it was on his finger, and now his finger's missing, as well as the ring. Mm-hmm. And it's good to note, too, that in the as far as the lore goes, that was the last Dwarven ring of power that existed. Uh, they were, um, I think uh, four of them had been destroyed by dragons. Two of them had already been caught by Sauron, and that was the last one. So Sauron was trying to collect them all. Okay. Did we ever find out what happens to that ring as well as the other ones that are he captured? Yeah, it doesn't say uh, in the book. It never says what happens to him. You just assume that he kept him, kind of like the nine rings of the mortal men. Same thing. He collected all the rings, which is why he had power over him. But uh, you just don't know what happened to him again. Okay. So he's able to reorient Thrain. And then they realize that well, I think Gandalf knew that it was a trap all along, but they start to see the Azog and his people, his orcs, kind of start to chase them, and they escape. But then, as they're crossing that last bridge to to escape the city, Sauron's there, and there's a confrontation between them. Uh, I Thrain, I I'm assuming dies in this moment because he kind of. Sauron grabs him with his power and he just disappears after that. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's where he dies. Yeah. And then Gandalf and Sauron have a pretty sweet um, battle there. Um, this is one of the highlights of the film for me in that, you know, Gandalf uses his magic to try and repel the, the darkness that is Sauron, but Sauron is just too powerful for him at that p- point. And his staff, you know, Gandalf's staff disintegrates because he's so powerful. And just the visuals that we see in that moment, as well as the sound design, you know, of the magics as they battle, is just adds so much to that moment. And is really fun to watch. Uh, it's cool. You can you can really see how the darkness just envelops the light of Gandalf. And yeah, especially in the theater when you watch it, you can just hear that the booming sound from the dark magic that Sauron is shooting towards Gandalf. It's, you can just feel the, the evil in that moment and just being 
kind of in despair that Gandalf is in. He realizes he's like, you know, literally backed up against a wall. And there's nothing <laughs> he could do. Yeah. Yep. So Sauron pins him against the wall, like you said, and he, Gandalf ends up in a, a cage for the rest of this film. But Mark says that's a made-up story. Yeah, it didn't happen. It's full crap. <laughs> didn't happen. But wasn't it cool no, though? It was cool. Yeah. But it doesn't match <clears throat> for a couple <laughs> reasons. Okay. Uh, one, uh, the wizards were told never to match their their power with Sauron's power. Um, now they both come from the same order. They're both from Arda. You know what I mean? So technically, they're probably around the same strength. But Gandalf was always worried because he didn't feel like he was worthy enough to come, so he never wanted to face Sauron. He always felt like he would fail, and then he was the only one that didn't, right? Yeah. So, uh, go, uh, but um, so they were told never to, you know, fight him directly head on, which is why they consistently used the people, you know, gathered the men, uh, gathered the dwarves, you know, whatever it is. He was always trying to get people together to fight for him. Because he was told that that's what he had to do. So because of that, when they start fighting, I was like, oh, that's a cool scene. But it, you know, as far as lore goes and story goes, it's just really incorrect. It would never happen. He would never match wits with him because of that reason. Um, well, Sauron attacked Gandalf. So he mm-hmm. kind of had to defend himself. Yeah. And that that is true. Um, but he's just made up part (laughs) in the end right but it it was really neat i I liked how it was um it's another thing to point out too um a lot of people talked about you know i've seen on boards and comments that well gandalf just got his butt kicked but gandalf at the time was in his human form when he becomes gandalf the white he's in his spirit form and in his spirit form which Sauron was in, he would have easily matched Sauron power for power. So that's why he got overwhelmed so easy is because he was uh, he wasn't in the higher form for uh, to to battle Sauron. Okay. So as far as power is concerned, do you think that was accurate though? Since he's in his human form, he couldn't have bested Sauron. Yeah, I don't think he could have bested Sauron at all in his human form. But, I mean, then you see, right, when he becomes Gandalf the White in the other movies, I mean, he breaks uh, Saruman's staff like it's nothing, right? Just um, doesn't even think about it. Just like, oh, your staff's broken, boom. That easy. Because he's in his spirit form. He's just so much more powerful that way. So, yeah, I think that's pretty accurate that Sauron would have overwhelmed him pretty, pretty soundly. And it's ironic because Sauron's in his spirit form, not in his body form. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, so he'd be a lot more powerful at this point. Uh, but I, I really did like the whole sequence. It was pretty neat and pretty intense, right? I mean, you guys remember watching. I was just like on the edge of my seat, like, oh, my gosh, what's going on? Yeah. It was It was neat. I, I really did like this part. Even though it's an addition, I did like it. <laughs> Did Gandalf have a ring of power at this moment? He did. So he received his ring of power the moment he came over. Okay. So Saruman I he got came, his from the elves. He did. Okay. So uh, Saruman came over first, if I remember right. And uh, he showed up. And I can't remember his name. Something sh- the shipwright. I can't remember. Like, I think it's Celebrane or something like that. Celebrane the shipwright. And... Uh, so he came over, Saruman did, and 
and uh, Celebrate knew who he was, sent him on his way. And then Gandalf came over, and he knew Gandalf. Like, he just had this feeling he would be great. You know, it was just like, man, this guy is a good guy. So then he gave him his ring of power right when he came over. Was the ship right so, an elf? Yeah, he's an elf. Um, but he just, like, you know, that's what he does. He ferries people back and forth or whatever. Um, he did a lot more in the first age, but that's kind of what he's doing now is just chilling and, I don't know, has a ring of power. So as soon as he met Gandalf, uh, he gave him his ring right away. So Gandalf has had a ring of power uh, the entire time he's been on Middle Earth. Okay. All right. So then that kind of ends that storyline from Gandalf in this movie. And then I think one of the last things we see from Dol Guldur is an orc army marching with Azog at its head to go and attack uh, the dwarves at the Lonely Mountain at Erebor. And Kimball, you said that uh, you made a comment earlier about how these orcs look like the ones from Mordor. Yeah, I thought they did with their armor. Um, just their their look kind of reminded me of of Mordor. Okay. So, but these were from the north because they came down from the north to Dogoldur. So I wonder if that's just a discrepancy or if a design decision to make them all look similar. I don't know. But that's yeah, an interesting observation. So we go back to the Lonely Mountain. Uh, we learn from the map that they read in the kingdom, Elven Kingdom of Rivendell, from Elrond, that they the dwarves had to be at the certain spot at a certain day to see in the last light of that day, Durin's day, would highlight a keyhole that they could use the key to open the back door. And so they make it to that. They're kind of racing there to get there. On that day, they make they find the door, get to the door. The sun goes down. The light's shining on where they're at, but they don't see a keyhole. And then the sun sets. So everyone's disappointed. We couldn't find it. We failed. We're going to have to wait another year or perhaps not even be able to accomplish this goal at all. So they, the dwarves are emotional as usual. And they just like, screw it, we're leaving. So they start to walk away. But Bilbo stays behind. He's like, there's got to be another way. we got to figure something out. And then the moon comes out. And the moon is the last light of Durin's day. And it shines, you know, hits the right angle. It shines on the wall that they were looking at. And that reveals the keyhole. So they're able to, to open that door at that moment. So it's an emotional moment for the dwarves. You know, they hadn't been there since they were kicked out by Smog 60 years ago. And I think it's only Thorin and the oldest dwarf who had lived there, or at least remembered living there. And so they're, they're yeah, excited. Balin. What was that? Balin. Yeah, Balin. So they're emotional about being back and remembering, you know, their home. But then they send Bilbo down to uh, find the Arkenstone. You know, to go burgle something. Yeah. That's what they tell him in the book. Yeah. You're the burglar. Go burgle something. Yep. 
So he heads down there. He's kind of looking around. They didn't really tell him what to look for other than you'll know it when you see it. So he's kind of, you know, what am I looking for? And then we see Smog. He kind of reveals himself. He's, he's shifting. He's literally buried in gold and jewels and you know all kinds of wealth, treasure. And he starts to move around. You see the, the piles of gold shift. And Bilbo's like, oh my gosh, that guy's big. Kind of freaks out a bit. And then Smog wakes up because he smells something new, but he doesn't know what it is. So Bilbo and Smog, they start to talk back and forth, play, I don't know if they play a game, but they kind of try to out, outwit each other, I guess, a little bit. And in the book, I I think I remember that Bilbo was would go down there for like weeks, right? That he wasn't just one day that he went down there and found Darkenstone, it was at least a matter of days, if not weeks. So he made multiple trips back and forth and he could never find the Arkenstone. But, in the, I mean, I wouldn't want to see a movie of Bilbo going down there for days. So, you know, it's good that they tightened it up a little bit and made it just one one trip down to the the treasure. But then they could have made a fourth film. <laughs> that that would have been amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, uh... Smog and Bilbo, Smog chases Bilbo, he puts on the ring a couple times, is able to hide from him, and they talk about how uh, Smog reveals to Bilbo that, you know, he he's just serving Thorin, that Thorin isn't going to share the treasure once he gets a hold of it, and that just like his grandfather, Thor, um, Thorin's going to be possessed with the greed of having this treasure. So, uh, he, Bilbo eventually finds the Arkenstone. There's a big chase scene with that. He's able to escape Smaug and meet up with the dwarves again. But first, he meets up with Thorin, and Thorin's like he doesn't even care, you know, how Bilbo's doing or if he, you know, what he's been up to. He's like, "Did you find it? Did you find the Arkenstone?" And Bilbo's like. Wow, Smog was right. He, he doesn't care about anything else. He just wants the Arkstone and the treasure. So he hedges on telling him that he found it. And then Smog shows up so they have to start running. There's this big extended chase scene. Lots of cool moments. But like Mark is fond of saying, it was made up and didn't happen in the book. It was, it was made up. Didn't happen. <laughs> but it was pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, if you need to tack on 30 minutes onto a movie, <laughs> it is amazing. It is the way to go. It it had some cool sequences, no doubt. I don't think anyone can deny that. Um, but, I mean, just like I said, I just think it's one of those things that you're just adding on to make more of nothing. Yeah. You know? Uh, but, I mean, it was pretty cool. I, I liked it. Uh, in the actual book, it's it really quick. Bilbo goes in, he steals some... He steals like a pot or something like yeah. that, leaves, and smog comes out. But in this one, you know, it's kind of a big chase. He's trying to chase them all down. You kind of get to see the vastness of the Lonely Mountain. Yeah. Like how large it is. And um, yeah, and I thought that was pretty neat because you never really get a visual of what the Lonely Mountain looks like. You just know it's huge. So I, I, I appreciated some of the visuals definitely in that 
that was going on. Uh, I have to be honest. I was excited when I heard, uh, was that Cumberpatch? What's his first name? Benedict. Benedict. Yeah, Benedict was, Cumberpatch was going to be Smog, and he let me down. I I didn't uh, get I didn't get the smogness out of him. I wanted something a little more fierce, not so sly. You know, he seemed like, you know, he was too sly, like he was almost like, I don't know, plotting. But to me, I thought that was silly because he's so big and powerful. He didn't need to plot. He could just do whatever he wanted. You know, it's like, I don't know. I thought that w- that part was kind of weird. Uh, I didn't like how they portrayed him in this one. Uh, I liked the way he looked. I just didn't like how they put like his attitude and his character, I guess. I just didn't, didn't match what I expected smog to be. Okay. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. You imagine a big dragon to be just fierce and dominating, which he obviously can be, but they did make him sly and tricky, I guess on purpose. Um, with, um, with how he's talking to Bilbo, the only way to, I guess, um, overcome him, the only way Bilbo was able to overcome Smog was just by appealing to his vanity. And so when Bilbo did that, he's telling him how great he is and how vast his treasure is. That kind of um, strokes Smog's ego. And he was able to not let down his defenses, but he was able to stall for time at least and look out where the Arkenstone was. So yeah, I, I was, when you think of a dragon, I was hoping some fierce demon being kind of like the Balrog in the fellowship. That would be nice, but I thought it was kind of fun how they made him more of a, a serpenty kind of character, more deceiving, like I guess more intelligent than just a fierce and, and might. Yeah, I think that was the trade-off, right? You could either get this fierce beast or a, a sly serpent. But I think you, you we see more of the fierceness of Smog in the next film. At least part of it, anyway. Anything else you guys want to say about the Lonely Mountain? It was a lonely place. Everyone was dead. It was... Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I just can't get over the visuals. I thought it was great how, how they showed that place. Um, the size of it and the gold too, right? I mean, the vastness of this this gold because you're told that you know they were rich and and uh, you know the doors were greedy and they held onto their gold and then you're like, oh yeah, like their whole mountains freaking gold. They got like too much. Like that's it was a ama- it was like overwhelming how much gold was in there, and then it was it was even cooler to see what it was doing to Thorin because there was so much gold. He could have shared it a hundred times over and he would have been still rich beyond measure. And he wouldn't share a penny. Wouldn't share anything. He's like, no, nope, this is my gold period. And it was interesting to see the depths of, of what that gold was doing to him. Yeah. Yeah, it changed him instantaneously almost, right? As soon as he, he walked down the stairways and saw everything there, and then from that moment on, he was just like, that's that's all he wanted. You know, he he wanted the Arkenstone, and he wanted to keep his gold, his his kingdom. Um, so There was a cool scene before that 
before he walks down, um, something that they pointed out in the special features that I really like. So when Bilbo's just down there and all the dwarves are up above, they're kind of waiting. They can hear the dragon roar. Um, Balin's kind of like, you know, go down there, Thorn. Like, what are you doing up here? Yeah. Thorn's like, no, I don't want to. And then Balin tells him, you know, he says, you're just like your, your grandfather. And then at that point, the cinematography, you can see Thorin's profile line up with the statue, the giant statue in the rock face behind him. Uh-huh. That statue is his grandfather. And so you can kind of see both their faces line up together. And Thorin says, no, I'm not. But it's like, as the camera angle, it just pans and shows him, yes, he is literally becoming it because he looks just like him. I thought that was a, a cool part that um, how they how they portrayed that, the, the symbolism of him turning into his grandfather. Okay. Yeah, so it's probably from that point on that he's, you know, all of a sudden doesn't care about anything else. Yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed that, so that's a good way to... Good thing to point out. Hmm. Yeah. No, I haven't noticed that either. I have to go relook at that. Yeah. Uh, you guys talked about, I think, Mark, about the vastness of the Lonely Mountain, and it did remind me of the Mines of Moria. So, how big that place was, and how many tunnels and different rooms there were, and everything. Uh, so you kind of get this consistency from. You know, the Dwarven Kingdom of Erebor and the Dwarven Kingdom of Moria. So it's good to see that, you know, there is some consistency there. They carry over. It has that same feeling, same art, you know, style that they use. Which, you know, it's the small things that add up that make you want to... Or make you think that, you know, this is a good film and they're all interconnected. And this is cool how you can actually see how they smelt the gold, how they dig. Because like, in Moria, you don't see much of the mining process. You just see the hallways, you see Balin's grave, and then that's about it. Um, but this one, like because Peter Jackson did this extended scene of Smaug attacking the dwarves, he really takes you in on a tour of the Lonely Mountain. And I thought that was cool to see, wow, this, this is how a mine kind of works. Yeah. Those huge smelting stations, right? Those were insanely large, and just you could imagine all that gold just running through there nonstop. It's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, so that was pretty cool to see. Uh, so then, while all that's going on, we back at Lake Town with uh, Feely and Keely and the dwarves. The orcs. Bolg and his orc group are still tracking the dwarves. They end up invading Lake Town and try to kill them. But then they find out that uh, Thorin has gone on to the Lonely Mountain. And so they start to leave and go back and report to Azog. But there's a, conf- there's a confrontation between the orcs and Tariel shows up with Legolas and they're able to fend off the orcs and save, you know, Bard, Bard's children and the remaining dwarves. And then Legolas has some pretty cool fight scenes with the orcs. He he ends up confronting Bolg and they fight to a draw and Bolg escapes. Yeah, that was a big letdown. 
Legolas could have easily shot him with an arrow as he was riding off on his horse. Oh, that made me so mad. <laughs> yeah. It's made up. It didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. But we get to see more between uh, Tariel and Feely. Uh, Tariel heals Feely just like uh, Arwen did with Frodo in the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, she uses the the King's Foil to to heal him. <clears throat> and you get this moment where he's looking up at her as she's enveloped with light, and he's like, oh, I'm in love. You know, that's kind of where they start to fall for each other is the the impression I got at that point. So then, yeah, Legolas chases Bolg off into the darkness, and that's kind of the end of their storyline for this movie. Um, and then back at the, the Lonely Mountain inside the, the Dwarven Kingdom, they're able to you know go through the smelting process like we talked about with the end goal of enveloping smog in gold and hopefully trapping him that way. So they go through the whole process. Um, they're able to you know, pour the gold over smog. And for a second there, you think, oh, they did it. And I guess if you hadn't read the books, you'd be like, oh, he's dead. They won. Yeah, that, that was what I thought when I first saw it, because I hadn't read the book. I thought, yes, they finally got him. Okay. And then when he rose up out of that gold pond, it was like, dang it. It was <laughs> kind of disappointing for me. Yeah. Yeah, so then he, he able, he's able to escape, and he wants to... I guess a little bit before that, um, Bilbo and Smog are talking, and Smog realizes that they came from Lake Town, and he's going to go destroy Lake Town. And Bilbo's like, "No, don't, don't do that." And so Smog realizes that he cares for the people of Lake Town, so it motivates him even more to go to Lake Town and destroy it. So after he escapes from the gold, um, he's able. He flies off and just. The, the ending of this movie for me was perfect. Um, he flies off and he's headed towards Lake Town flying. And you hear Smog say, I am fire. I am death. And then the music just cuts out and it's just silence. And you hear Bilbo say, what have we done? And then the movie ends. I love that ending. That was that was, I think, for me, one of the best endings for any film that's in a series where it just really leaves you hanging like oh no you you got that dread sense yeah. of dread because in the in the lord of the rings films like each movie was ended very perfectly it's like they wrapped it up everyone is nice and happy um even star wars kind of does that in a sense but yeah. like this one even with the last hobbit film it ends with with um smaug's eye and it's like whoa look at this dragon you kind of like left with a sense of like what's next and then this one you see him flying off towards lake town you're like oh no he's gonna destroy that whole thing i just thought it was perfect i love that ending you just you're filled with dread and it just ends quietly there's not like um any music or anything it just stops yeah yeah Uh, a really good cliffhanger there wanting you know leaving you wondering what's gonna happen next but you kind of know what's going to happen next, but because Smog's just going to go on a rampage is the impression you get. So, yeah, definitely. Oh yeah, and also with that, I remember um, a little side note. Um, 
during the last presidential election with Trump and Hillary, um, after Trump won, I woke up the next day and I felt just like Bilbo. <laughs> you know, like, what have we done? <laughs> not to not to give any of my um, political leanings away or anything, but uh, I just I kind of had that little impression. I thought that was fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We'll leave it at that. So, some of the themes that we we saw addressed in this um, movie, the the idea of corruption of people getting corrupted, we see that pop up a few times here and there. Uh, most notably, we see Thorin being corrupted by the gold. Um, there's that moment that you talked about, Kimball, where basically he turns into his grandfather, at least the the thinking of his grandfather. Uh, we have Bilbo being corrupted by the ring momentarily. Um, we have Bard who on, on some level, you know, he changes his mind. He, at first he's helping him out, helping out the dwarves and Bilbo. But then once he realizes what their mission is and what could happen, he doesn't want to help out. He just leaves them hanging. And then we see Thranduil. He's, I got the sense that he was corrupted by something evil. And he didn't want to help out the dwarves. He was fine with just imprisoning them and letting them rot. So we kind of have that, you know, that theme of corruption. Were there any others that you thought of or have you guys have any take on, on this theme of corruption throughout the film? Uh, you know, I think it's like that, but I think it's more of like your good instincts to overcoming your bad instincts, right? Because Thorin, I mean, look at the movies, right? He gets corrupted and look what, what happened with him. Thranduil gets corrupted, look what happened to him. Frodo overcame corruption, look what, what he, he enabled. When uh, Thorin finally overcame his corruption, look what he did, right? And so I think it was just kind of like a, a showing like, like you said, you know, you have this corruption, but but good is always there. You just have to be willing to to take it or do it. You know, just have the willpower to to set aside your selfish ambitions or whatever that is. Yeah. And we also have a theme of deception throughout. Uh, we have Bilbo not telling Gandalf about the ring. Um, he hides it from him, even though Gandalf's the perfect person to know about it, to help him, you know, to help counsel with him at least on what to do with it. Um, we have Bard hiding the dwarves to bring him into Lake Town. So, you know, a little bit of deception going on throughout the, the film. Then there's also kind of a, a theme of enslavement throughout the movie, where Lake Town is enslaved to the master of Lake Town. You know, they, they're poor, but yet he has all this money in his house. He's counting his gold at a, at a scene during a scene in the movie. Uh, but they, they're suffering. They're barely getting by. You know, they used to be a, a, a town of trade and very prosperous, but now they it's just a bunch of, sh bunch of shanties hooked together on the, the lake. So definitely they're enslaved to the master of Lake Town. Uh, Bjorn... He mentions, you know, his there were, were once a bunch of them, of these shapeshifters, but
but they were captured by the orcs and enslaved and a lot of them were killed and I got the I think you know all of them were killed except for him he was the last one then the elves kind of had a, their own type of enslavement as well Tariel was enslaved to the the kingdom she wasn't really allowed to leave especially in the end she had to escape and she and Legolas were friends I don't know if they were lovers but uh, she wasn't allowed to to be around him due to her station in the you know, station in life or her her role where what she does so there's you know these themes of ensla- and then obviously the the dwarves were I guess Thorin was enslaved to his gold. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts on those topics or any other themes that you guys noticed uh, in this film? Hmm. You know, it's pretty much um, like you said, you know, I think one of the things that kind of sticks out that you'll see more between this movie and the next movie is that you kind of see a lot of the corruption win right i mean even even with uh gandalf getting caught you know uh sauron says to him no amount of light can pierce the dark and then next one you kind of see the opposite of that you know it's just the little bit of light that can pierce through the dark and allow more light to come through so i think that's just the general idea too of the entire book Yep. But, uh, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of different themes, a lot of different, uh, and it's really the same thing, just on, you know, different levels or different uh, storylines or whatever it is. But, uh, no, it's, pre- it's really interesting to see, you know, what overambition and greed does to people or, you know, festering hate or frustration or whatever it is, you know, like you see with Thranduil, how he just does, you know, is upset with the dwarves and, you know, you can rot in prison for all I care. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting. The themes are in this book, uh, and in the movie, I think they did a good job portraying that. Yeah. I'd say even Smaug enslaves the whole world, besides for um, Sauron, but at least the free people, they all want Smaug out of there, but they can't do anything about it. And so at least that half of the world is kind of like stuck under his shadow, even though he's not even doing anything. It's just his very presence is enslaving. And that's why Gandalf realizes we got to get rid of this guy. Yeah. Yeah, so lots of layers with these topics, these themes. Uh, Gan- uh, when we forgot to mention Gandalf, you know, he ends up getting enslaved by Sauron at the end of the film. He's locked in a cage and can't go anywhere. One of the most powerful beings in Middle Earth. He's unable to to leave. Uh, so some of the character development that I want to touch on with Bilbo is the the issue of trust. Um, he at the end of the the last chapter, the first movie. Him and Thorne kind of have a bond. They start to trust each other. Like Thorne starts to trust him throughout this movie. But then at the end, uh, Bilbo doesn't trust Thorne with good reason. When he gets the Arkenstone and Smog tells him, you know, Thorne doesn't care about you. He's just after the gold. And then he kind of sees, Bilbo sees that when he meets up with Thorne after that. So after all their progress uh, in the last movie and in the first part of this movie, 
it all goes out the door once the Arkenstone is introduced. And well, and also that shows how powerful Smaug is. He was able to undo almost a year of trust that Bilbo had with these dwarves, with Thorin, and just in a matter of, we'll just say for the movie's sake, an hour or so, um, of him talking to Smaug. Smaug just totally um, dissolves that trust that he had for Thorin, and it kind of goes away. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other dwarves trust him. Uh, they they appreciate his value, and they they're you know kind of watching from the sidelines, and they they see how trustworthy Bilbo is. They see how important he is to the whole mission. I mean, they wouldn't have got inside the mountain without Bilbo's help. So, you know, he is just with Thorn and the, the the relationship they have. Uh, and then Thorin in this film, I, the last episode I talked about how I didn't really like Thorin. And that starts to change in the beginning. He starts to come around and trust Bilbo and they're kind of buddies there for a bit. Bilbo vouches for him in Lake Town. He puts himself out there and says, you know, I trust this guy. This guy will do what he says. If he says he's going to give you some of the gold, he'll do it. And But then, once again... Thorin gets greedy, and we see that he doesn't want to share anything. So Thorin's back to, I think, even worse than what it was before in the first film. So again, I, as my impression of Thorin started to, to rise and I started to like him, he all of a sudden falls even further than what he was in the first movie. Um, then with the... The Gandalf's wisdom for the film. Um, there wasn't really a moment that Gandalf had that like he did in the previous film. There was, you know, two moments that he had where he, he imparted his wisdom and gave some good quotes. But this one, the only one I could think of is when he's about to enter Dogledur and, you know, Radagast says... You know, it's probably a trap, and Gandalf responds with, it's undoubtedly a trap. And then he draws a sword and goes in anyway. So I think the wisdom is that Gandalf knew it was a trap. He knew, you know, his life could be on the line, but yet he, he went forward anyway. One pretty cool yeah. Go ahead. No, no, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and I think that shows really... I mean, every book or, you know, theme or storyline always has the, uh, like, the the Jesus character is what they call it, you know. And, and that's kind of like what he is. He's willing to do this. Like, he's like, yeah, it's undoubtedly a trap, but it's got to be done. And so he goes on there knowing that he could die. Like, he's willing to sacrifice himself to find something out. And uh, it's, I mean, Gandalf is just, like, through and through, like, uncorruptible. Like, he just, he knows his mission, and, and he's going to complete it regardless of the consequences to himself. Yeah. Uh, just a couple more things to wrap it up. Uh, we do get to see a Stephen Colbert cameo in Lake Town. Uh, yeah, I saw that. I saw you guys said that, and I, I haven't seen that. I'm going to have to go back and look for it. I'm not a Stephen Colbert fan anyway, but I think it'd be cool to see him. I never noticed that. Yeah. He has a, a moment when they're when they first arrive 
and Bard's son warns him that there's spies, that their house is being watched. And then there's like the sequence of spies giving each other signals and all of that. He's the one sitting on the kind of on the edge of the lake or the where the sidewalk is on the lake. He's got a, a eye patch and a pipe and he lights the pipe. I think that's, that's Oh yeah. Thing. And then those guys put the their fishing poles in the water. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that's him. And you kind of I only figured that out by watching the special features. And they kind of did a one of the special features was on that, his cameo. And he they showed him in costume and he was pretty unrecognizable. I mean, if I would have, if I wouldn't have known, I couldn't have picked it out that he, that was Stephen Colbert. So, and then Peter Jackson was going to have a sequence in that whole spy part as well, but and they filmed it and they showed the footage from it, but it just didn't work out very well. So they cut him, cut him from that. But sequence. he he did make an appearance in the beginning as Carrot Man. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was kind of cool because there's also a Carrot Man in the Fellowship, I believe. Um, yeah. So, like, in both of the trilogies, Peter Jackson is eating a carrot. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty <laughs> nice tie-in. But, yeah, if you have the, the DVDs or access to the special features, uh, I recommend watching them. They're, there's a lot of them, and they're pretty lengthy, but a lot of great information. I mean, they're almost un- a film unto themselves because there's just, you know, so much good stuff. It's, you know, documentary style, and they give on this one the ones the couple that i watched uh they talk about lake town how they built a full set for it a lot of detail was put into these sets uh they talked about how they created the master of lake town and his backstory and why they included him and you know it's just a lot of great information if you're a fan of these movies definitely watch these uh extended editions with the the special feature discs i mean each there's two discs in each uh movie and they're just filled with uh special features back you know backstory behind the scenes moments uh information trivia questions that you would if well if you, if you watch them you'd know all the trivia questions so pretty cool stuff so that's it for uh, our review of chapter two of the hobbit the desolation of smog uh once again uh we're gonna transition into chapter three for our next podcast episode and that one is called the battle of the five armies and that in my opinion is the best of the the trilogy it's also the longest but a lot of great stuff a lot of great scenes in that chapter so to wrap it up uh, do you guys have any final thoughts on on this film and what we've talked about any additional information you want to add on this chapter two Kimball yeah for me I think this was the best film of the trilogy this is I really liked it um, kind of a more personal reason though this uh, I was watching this film with my um, my wife before while we were dating and we after the film was over, we had our first kiss after this. So Aww. to me, it's pretty special. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess that would be my favorite too if that was my situation. <laughs> yeah, it was enchanting. <laughs> nice. Okay. 
What about for you, Mark? Any last thoughts on this chapter? Uh, definitely not my favorite of the three. It's probably my least favorite of the three. <laughs> not that I didn't like any of them, right? I mean, it's just out of the three, if I had to pick an order, this would be last. Um, but uh, the third one's definitely my favorite. Uh if you're following along with us, watch the extended version because that's what we'll be talking about. It was amazing. Um, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in, in, in this uh, in this film that it does for a lot of story building that I really, really appreciated. Um, you know, they're just good, solid films. They're, they're a fun watch. Uh, you know, get into it. These Read the book. You know, if you haven't read the book, read the book. It's a great little book. It's only, it's not that long, right? A couple hundred pages, two, three hundred pages. Yeah, I think we said three seventy or something. Three fifty. Oh yeah. So yeah, not not that bad. We kick you like, I don't know, like five hours or something. Yeah. You could read the book in a lot shorter time than it would take you to watch all three movies. That's guaranteed because <laughs> you can skip over half of it because half of it's about leaves floating in the wind. I kid you not. You think I'm lying. Read the book. <laughs> yeah. So as a side note, uh, we are doing a contest for our listeners on our Facebook page. If you're listening to this podcast episode on or around January 30th, January 31st of 2018, we're having a contest where we're giving away the Hobbit trilogy on Blu-ray the extended editions and all you have to do is like our Facebook page and comment on the post as well as share the post you know we're trying to get our name out there get the word out there of who we are what we do and this is one way to do that so we are uh, rewarding our listeners for for doing that uh, it's, it's about a 50 60 dollar value that we're gonna give away for free to anyone who likes these movies and wants to see the extended editions, wants to own them, you know, just enter the contest. It doesn't cost you anything. It takes you about 30 seconds, if that, to, to like our page, Random Angst, on Facebook, as well as share the post. So we want to encourage you guys to do that. Um, so next up is Chapter 3 of the Hobbit trilogy, The Battle of the Five Armies, and that'll be out soon in the next week or so so we want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of the middle earth saga rewatch and we look forward to catching up with you guys next time so you guys have a good night may the force be with you good night